Matthew chapter 5, and we come this morning to the second of the Beatitudes in verse 4. And it'll be our goal this morning to look at the three facets, or just three of the probably many facets, of kingdom mourning. And that will be our study this morning. I thought it'd be profitable, and it will be continually. I'll do this every Sunday for us to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, just to see the Beatitudes as a whole, and to get a grasp on the words that are preceding what we'll study this morning and what will come later as we study throughout the weeks ahead. Let's read together, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up onto the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is the word of the Lord. This morning we'll study verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be or will be comforted. Now, by way of review, we need to look backwards and rehearse some of what we've already studied. I don't want to spend a lot of time in review this morning because we have plenty to discuss when we speak of mourning as kingdom citizens. But last week, we looked first and foremost at the overarching characteristic of those who are within the kingdom. We talked about poverty of spirit. We asked ourselves three questions to help explain what is intended for us in verse 3. We asked what was meant by poor in spirit. We had to examine what it didn't mean and look then clearly at the ramifications of a spiritual poverty, a bankruptcy of the heart, a destitution and a poverty beyond compare as we stood before a holy and righteous God. Secondly, we ask, what is opposed by poor in spirit? What does poverty in spirit stand against in our lives as kingdom citizens? There are attitudes, there are actions, there are worldviews and lifestyles that are opposed by those who are truly poor in spirit. We discuss the fact that there is no external remedy that could bring about poverty in spirit. There is nothing you could put on There is nothing that you could sell or get rid of that would generate poverty in spirit. It opposes external fixes, and it opposes the pride and self-righteousness of those who desire to work their way into the kingdom. And then the last question we studied was, what what is promoted or what is put forth as the explanation or the illustration of those who are poor in spirit? So what does it promote in our lives? What responses, what attitudes, what actions are promoted by this poverty of spirit which inherits right now in the present 
inherits the kingdom of heaven and will inherit the full culmination of the kingdom at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we made it clear, I trust, last week that poverty in spirit is a prerequisite for salvation. There are no inheritors of the kingdom of heaven who have not been brought to realize their poverty in spirit. In other words, there is no one who is in heaven now. There is no one who will go to heaven in the future. There is no one who will enjoy the benefits of the kingdom. No one who has not come to the end of himself, who has not recognized his utter inability to gain merit with a holy God. That is the grand characteristic of the kingdom. It is a group of people that God has gathered together and He has revealed to them, He has given them eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that they have no righteousness within themselves. And yet He has provided that righteousness through the substitutionary death of His Son. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about poverty and spirit and what we'll study today will not at all be disconnected from that poverty. It will flow directly from the realization of our utter destitution within before God who is holy and perfect. Now, just by way of reminder, and these we've already talked about this at length, but the Sermon on the Mount, if you're new with us, if you're joining us this morning for the first time, the Sermon on the Mount is first and foremost concerned about the heart. Right? It's not about externals. It's not about things that you can fix by walking away with your little list of things that you want to see change. I'd like to see poverty in spirit. I'd like to see these things check off Monday. I got covered poverty in spirit. I did X, Y, and Z, and the result was poverty in spirit. This is not about externals. It's about your heart. It's an explanation of the reality of those who are within the kingdom. Right? It's not fundamentally a call for you to make yourself poor in spirit. It's not fundamentally a call for you to make yourself mourn. It is at its base level, at its foundation, it is an explanation. It's instructing you, it's informing you of what is real about people who have been saved. And it serves as an explanation, it serves as an opportunity for you and for me to lay our hearts, our lives before the Word of God, and to see if these realities are in fact the realities of who we are. In other words, this is an opportunity for examination for all who would claim to be within the kingdom, to be followers of Christ, the King. So it is first and foremost about your heart. It is an opportunity for you to examine your heart, to lay it before the Word of God, the Word of the King, as He explains the realities of His kingdom. Secondly, and directly tied to that, it is all about the kingdom. This is all about the kingdom of heaven. That is the kingdom that was ushered in and inaugurated at the coming of Christ and His incarnation, which we'll continue to celebrate for the weeks ahead, and will be culminated in His return to gather His people together, to do battle with those who stand opposed to Him, and to establish His reign forever as the King. This section of your Bible, this sermon that Jesus preached, this greatest sermon that he preached, is establishing the norms for his kingdom. 
In other words, we can't just take this and lay the Sermon on the Mount as principles for living, good principles for the world to live out. In fact, the world has borrowed from the Sermon on the Mount on a number of occasions. Most of you grew up knowing the golden rule before you knew that it came from the Sermon on the Mount. And yet the world has no ability to live out in truth what we find in the Sermon on the Mount, the characteristics of the kingdom citizens. And so you must understand, and I must understand, as we come to our study, that this section of Scripture is about those who are within the kingdom. It cannot be lived out by mere effort. Any effort to live according to the Sermon on the Mount that is devoid of poverty of spirit, that is devoid of the Spirit's power and transformation, will simply be an exercise in futility. And it will be an exercise of those who are trying to gain righteousness on their own before God. This sermon assumes grace. This sermon, the more we study it, the more we expose the realities that are here, will drive your heart to grace. You will be driven for your need and desire for God to work in and through you to see these lived out in your lives. And yet He has made every provision needed for this to be the reality of who you are. Right? Christ is sufficient. He has not left you with an excuse The sermon is too hard. The sermon is too demanding. I don't have the resources necessary to live in accordance with these realities. If you are in Christ this morning, you have every resource needed to live in victory and to live out the expressions and the heart and the characteristics of the kingdom citizens. You are one. And you must live in that reality. And we'll discuss that as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in the Beatitudes, this first section, which really feeds the remainder of the sermon, let's be reminded that blessed, every verse here will begin with this same word, blessed is not just a human happiness or some human sense of joy. It's not superficial. It's not temporal. It doesn't come and go. This blessedness is not from man blessing a man, It's not from a man showing favor to another man or woman. This is favor. This is blessing. This is joy that is granted from God in condescension to men. It is eternal. It is not temporal. It is inward, not outward. It's not superficial. It's not on the surface. This is a deep, abiding joy and settled happiness because of these realities. The structure of these verses helps us in our translation to see the theme or the the parallelism that goes throughout the Beatitudes. But really, if we were to translate these into English, for the sake of clarity, we could say this is the translation, the poor in spirit are happy, they're blessed. The mourners are blessed. The meek ones are blessed. They're happy. They're joyful in the eternal and internal sense. So the kingdom citizens are these blessed individuals whom God has graced with real joy and true happiness. And all that the world chases, and all that the world goes on and on pursuing in their life, 
desiring for happiness is the sole possession of those who are in the kingdom. Right? The kingdom is the place of true happiness. Now, the world is certainly pursuing happiness, but there could probably be no more unified expression of that pursuit than we see in the area of humor within our world. Our culture today thrives on laughter and on frivolity, on silliness. It thrives on it. In many ways, we thrive on it. Our culture screams to stay sane, to keep your mind where it should be. You've got to be laughing. Every moment of every day provides you countless opportunities to laugh. There are comedians by the dozens. There are comedians who are coming to churches to make you laugh. There are comedy shows on your television set. There are comic strips in your newspaper. We have a culture that is addicted to laughing. And there certainly is nothing wrong with laughter. The Old Testament tells us that a merry heart is a good thing. and We should be filled with joy and happiness. But laughter in our world and in our culture is the mask of choice. Laughter and hilarity and frivolity and silliness is the great escape of our world. It is the mask that is worn to cover what is real, what is staring them in the face. God's Word reveals that true joy, true happiness, lasting internal happiness comes only to those who are mourners, not those who get the biggest laughs for the most amount of time. It comes only to those who mourn, who weep, who are sorrowful. And nothing, it seems, is more unpopular in our laugh-happy culture than mourning and mourners, right? Even when it's appropriate to mourn, it should be done so very briefly and sporadically. Let's not make too much of mourning. Maybe you've been at funerals. Maybe you've been in other settings where mourning is appropriate, where grief is appropriate where the realities of death and loss are staring us in the face, and you have had a relative or a friend who has only one outlet in that moment, only one response to the pain that is staring everyone in the face, and that is to make as many jokes and to try to be as funny as possible in the moment. If we could just laugh, then we wouldn't think about why we are crying. This is the message of our world. And unfortunately, folks, the church has followed after the culture, really. It really has. There was a day in the past, before my time, there was a day when the church was filled with those who were consumed with the seriousness of what they were about. They were consumed with the seriousness of sin. They were consumed with the reality of what true joy looked like. So much of the church has just become frivolous, superficial. Let's just laugh, pat each other on the back, have a good time, spend our hour and a half together, and go on our way. The kingdom is something utterly different. The kingdom is made up of those who mourn and then in turn are comforted by God, the great comforter. The kingdom 
is made up of those who understand the disgusting nature of sin. And they see it. They're poor in spirit. They see their sin for what it is. They see their lifestyle. They see their actions. And they despise it and they mourn at the consequence that must come for their sin and for the sins of their culture around them. The kingdom is made up of those who are comforted in their mourning because they have taken seriously what God's word has to say about who God is and who we are as created men and as fallen sinners. So here in Matthew chapter 5, we meet the paradox of the kingdom. Yet another paradox. No one will ever be true and eternally happy unless they are marked as mourners. The saddest people on the planet will be comforted. Those who have the deepest and most realistic sadness that overcomes them in mourning and weeping will be comforted by the one who gives all comfort. and They will be truly blessed. This is the reality of the heart in the kingdom. Now that leaves us really asking some questions and needing to study a little bit more thoroughly what the king has to say about this mourning and these mourners who are blessed. Because this really, at face value, doesn't make sense. Even if you took this at the most surface level, that everyone who's sad is going to be happy, that God will comfort everybody, no matter what, who's sad, you're still stuck with that hard word blessed at the front of the verse. What does it mean that sad people are happy because they'll be comforted? How does that relate to us? And particularly in the context of the kingdom, what is it that Matthew has recorded Jesus as trying to get across to his disciples? That's what leads us to these three facets of kingdom mourning. And we spend entirely too much time on that introduction and review. So let's move quickly to facet number one of kingdom mourning, the condition. The condition. There are three C's. The condition of kingdom mourning, the cause of kingdom mourning, and then the comfort for kingdom mourning. Okay, the condition, the cause, and then we'll conclude with the comfort. What is the nature of this blessed, truly happy mourning? What is the nature of it? What does it look like? How should we know it when we see it? The mourning that characterizes the kingdom citizens in the Sermon on the Mount is the emotional counterpart. It's the emotional expression of those who have come to the reality of poverty of spirit. So in verse 3, we have a group of people who are the kingdom citizens, and they have been made fully aware that they are without a resource before God. They are without hope. They have nothing. And their response to that, as those who have been shown their poverty in spirit, their response is verse 4. There is an emotional response to the heart reality of verse 3, and it is mourning. The mourning is no less spiritual than the poverty was. Don't miss that. Jesus could have just as easily said, blessed are those who mourn in spirit. The thought continues from verse 3. Poverty, in and of itself, in a temporal sense, guarantees no blessing from God. Poverty in spirit guarantees the kingdom of heaven will be inherited. Mourning, in a general sense, in a temporal and external sense, guarantees no comforting from God, the God of the universe. And yet mourning 
from the spiritual sense, guarantees the greatest comfort of all. They will be comforted by none other than God Himself. Mourning at all human levels does not guarantee a promise of blessing from God. This is a spiritual mourning that we see. That is the condition of the heart in the kingdom. It is a mourning, sorrowful heart that is then in turn comforted. And that's the order that we must see from verse number 4. So this mourning is an inner mourning. It is about spiritual matters. It is not an outward mourning. And it is not about temporal matters. Okay? I hope that's clear. In other words, you can't put this on. You cannot fake mourning as we see it in the Sermon on the Mount. There's nothing you could do that could make mourning happen. It's not about your demeanor. It's not about being a sad, sorry little creature that slumps his way into church. Well, what's wrong with you? Well, I'm just mourning this morning. I'm just living out the Beatitudes. It's not about your clothing. It's not about your sackcloth. Please leave your sackcloth in the cupboard. Let's not bring that out. Let's not wear that. It's not about ashes smeared on your head. It's not about shaving your head. Those are all ancient expressions of mourning in an external sense. It's not about depression. God is not calling you to a morose life of sadness. It's not about your weeping and wailing publicly before others. This is a heart mourning. It is a spiritual mourning. And it has spiritual motivations and it has spiritual expressions. This is the heartbeat of the kingdom. Poor in spirit, those who mourn. This is the condition of mourning. It is internal. It is spiritual. Though it has external and physical ramifications, surely those of us who have mourned our sin, surely those of us who, whether at the point of conversion or yesterday, as we sat before the Lord and sat before His Word, we have had physical reaction to the internal mourning in our spirit. When we see sin for what it is, we with David and with many others in our Scriptures weep before God. We recognize the vileness of offending Him. We see His holiness. We see the sacrifice of our Savior for the sins that we have committed and will commit. And every time we're, we're made aware of it, our hearts are reminded that we are in desperate need of comfort from one and one only, that is, the Comforter, our God. So that is the condition. It is an internal and it is a spiritual mourning. Secondly then, quickly, the cause of kingdom mourning. And this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. What causes this mourning that is blessed? Why is it that these people in the kingdom, those of us who are in Christ, why are we marked by mourning? This mourning is inherently spiritual, which leads us to understand its cause is also spiritual. So when we examine what causes this, we must look back, and we've already done that in some sense, to verse 3, it is the emotional response to spiritual bankruptcy before God. Listen to this. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the British pastor of a generation ago, says this. This is his personal testimony. As I confront God and His holiness and contemplate the life that I am meant to live, I see myself 
my utter helplessness and hopelessness. I discover my quality of spirit. That is, I see my own virtue, my quality of spirit, and immediately that makes me mourn. Let me read that again. As I confront God and His holiness and contemplate the life I am meant to live, I see myself and my utter helplessness and hopelessness. I discover my quality in contrast to His, my quality of spirit, and immediately that makes me mourn. Sin in our nature, sin in our actions, sin in our attitudes is the cause of spiritual mourning which will ensure the blessing of the Messiah King. This mourning is mourning over sin. It is mourning over the destitution that poverty and spirit has made fully aware in our minds and in our hearts. We see sinfulness in our core, in our lives, and in the lives of the world in which we live. And the result, for those who are within the kingdom, those who are in Christ, those who have come to saving faith, the result is mourning. It is sadness at the deepest level. Because it is sadness that is informed by the deepest truth. Your mourning will only go as far as the information that informs it. Does that make sense? Your mourning will only be as pure as the purity of your understanding of what sin is, of what the crucifixion represented, what it accomplished. That will ensure the depth of our spiritual mourning. And it will benefit us with great comfort and we will be blessed. Now, we see this throughout Scripture, really. Mourning over sin is not something that's foreign to you. We've seen this in example from cover to cover in our Bibles. But I wanted to take just a few moments and look at just a few examples of those who mourned over their sin. And I think these will be an encouragement to you. Turn back to the book of Job, which comes right before the collection of the Psalms. The book of Job, which is a part of our wisdom literature, guiding us to think properly and to live in light of proper thinking. The final chapter of Job, chapter 42. We're going to cheat and read the end of the story. Job has accused God on a number of occasions. He has called out God for an answer of why he's going through this. He has been convinced by his own character that he is righteous. Therefore, God should not be doing this to him. And in demanding an answer from God, God does in fact answer him, but he answers him with questions. You remember this, right? God answers him with, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you when I caused the springs to bring water from the deep? Where were you, Job? In other words, who in the world are you to demand an answer from me? And in light of God's holiness, and in light of God's power, and his majesty, we see someone who has been brought to the poverty of spirit and their mourning in Job chapter 42 and verse 1. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. 
verse 6, is the expression of those who mourn in light of the knowledge of God. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and in ashes. Therefore, I despise myself, Job says, in comparison to you, in the moment of my poverty of spirit, God, I have been reminded again that I have crossed the line. I have asked what I should not have asked. I have made statements that I should not have made. And in light of seeing you with fresh eyes, I despise what I see in myself. I mourn it. I repent in dust and ashes. That is mourning. Job, beaten, tried, never informed of what we have in this account, never told of why things were happening in his life, in his humiliation, in his destitution before God, in his heart, he despised himself. Another account that you're very familiar with in Isaiah chapter 6. We've studied this recently. We've looked at this passage. Isaiah chapter 6. I think we even referenced it last week. Isaiah comes into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnation. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This is Isaiah speaking. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, and these are vital words, Holy, holy, holy. Utterly separate. Utterly other than us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, verse 5, here is the cry of one who mourns, Woe is me. Woe is me. Why? Because what has been said about the one on the throne is true. And my response is nothing but mourning. It is woe, fear, despair. How can I ever stand before the one who is holy, who is the Lord of hosts, whose glory fills the earth? And of course, the gracious response of our Lord. Isaiah goes on to say, I'm a man of unclean lips. I see my sin, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I see the sin of my culture, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. He burned his mouth with a coal. And behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Poverty of spirit is expressed through mourning. Woe is me. I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. To the New Testament then, to our beloved Apostle Paul, giving us so much instruction in word, written so many letters that mean so much to us in his own testimony about his own life in Romans chapter 7. And we've looked at this in the last couple of weeks as well. We see him expressing the mourning that accompanied his understanding of his poverty and spirit. Verse 15 says, For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, 
but I do the very thing I hate. If I do what I want, what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It's the principle of remaining sin that is acting out this sinful life in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What's Paul's response to the battle of the spiritual life of the Christian prior to glorification? Here is his response, verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. This is mourning on display. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I am wretched. Woe is me. I despise myself because I see my sin for what it is. I see God's holiness for what it is. This is the attitude of the kingdom, folks. This is the attitude of those who have been brought into a relationship with the King Himself, Jesus Christ. There are no kingdom citizens who have not come to the end, seen they have nothing to offer. They are in total poverty and then mourned the reality of the offensiveness of their sin. Mourned their hopelessness without a Savior, without a substitute. This is the attitude of those who see their sin for what it is. Not only that, but there is another sense in which we mourn, and that is for the sins that we see in others around us. The sin that we see in our culture, the sin that we see in our nation, the sin that we see in God's people should drive us to mourning. And I want to look just at a couple of examples of this just because it's always a joy to do this. Let's look at the example of our Lord. We could go throughout the Old Testament and the New and look at examples of this. Let's look at the example of our Lord. John chapter 11, and we'll see our Lord mourning for the sins of and the sinful attitudes of others. You remember John 11. This is like one of the greatest Bible stories in Sunday school ever, right? Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, verse 1 says, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And Lazarus was ill, all right. He was so ill that he died. So skipping a lot of verses, Lazarus is dead. Jesus has been beckoned to come and deal with it. He has delayed his coming obviously for the sake of coming and putting his power on display and resurrecting Lazarus. He shows up, finally, he comes. Verse 28, he arrives. Martha goes and grabs her sister and says, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When Mary had heard this, she rose quickly and went to him, that being Jesus. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Just as a side note, we'll study this eventually in time, but the Jews who were consoling her were hired mourners who would come to a family's home and would weep and wail and create a commotion for the sake of public mourning. 
So they saw the lady who was truly mourning get up and go. They follow her. Now when Mary, verse 32, notice this. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you just would have showed up, none of this would have been happening. Here's Mary. Here's the professional mourners who have followed her. And her response to our Lord Jesus Christ, the one that she loved, the one that she followed, was one of utter doubt, without trusting, without faith. If you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That is, he was bothered. He was bothered by their sinful response, their lack of faith, their lack of confidence, even his beloved Mary, his dear friend, and a precious follower of his cause. And then verse 35, verse 34 says, And he said, Where did you lay him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, the champion of all who want to have Scripture memory, verse 35, Jesus wept. Say, why did Jesus weep? Jesus wept because he saw the reality of the sinful response of the people around him. He was brokenhearted at their lack of faith. He was disturbed at their response to the death of one who was a follower of his name. He was disturbed by their lack of confidence that he had the power to do what he was about to do. He did not weep for the death of Lazarus. He was there to raise him. He came for that reason. So the Jews said, here's their interpretation of Jesus weeping, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So even in this moment, Jesus is weeping at the response of Mary and those around her, and the Jews who are there are assessing Jesus. Some are saying, wow, he really loved Lazarus, that's why he's crying. Others are saying, hey, uh, yeah, he's crying, but if he would have come, he could have healed the guy, right? I mean, isn't this part and parcel with his ministry. Jesus is consumed with grief for their response. Verse 38. When Jesus heard that response to his weeping, look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And then the story goes on. And he resurrects Lazarus from the tomb. Jesus was one who mourned for the sins of those who were around him. He goes on to mourn again in Luke chapter 19. We find another account where Jesus puts on display spiritual mourning on behalf of others. Luke chapter 19. Near the end of the chapter, and this is maybe familiar to you as well. And when he drew near and saw the city, this is he came to Jerusalem. This is the end. This is near the very end of his ministry. Luke 19.41 says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. Why? Here's why. Verse 42, saying, What would that you, even you, that is, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem. He looks on it, and knowing their rejection of him, knowing the imminent destruction of the city of Jerusalem, knowing that the people who rejected him would die, die without hope, Jesus mourns on their behalf. He weeps on the behalf of sinful people. So the condition of the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, is that it is a spiritual reality, not a physical one. It is internal, not external, though it has external ramifications. It is the emotional response to those who have been poor in spirit, who have been made aware of their poverty. And sin is its cause. The condition is internal. The cause is sin. It is sin on our own lives that we see. It is our filth before a holy God that causes us to mourn. It is the sin in the life of others in our culture that should cause us to grieve. You know, in our culture, don't we just love reading those sections where Jesus went in and just beat the thunder out of the temple? He's flipping over tables. He's got a whip. He's slashing things. He's calling down woes from heaven. He's shouting at the Pharisees that they will be destroyed, that they are a brood of vipers. We think, yeah, our culture, they need to hear that. That reminds you that that's the same Lord who wept, was grieved for the sins of those around him. Knowing more than we could ever, ever know, understanding more than we could ever understand their end. It grieved him. He mourned. Sin is serious. Sin is weighty. Sin is disgusting. And sin will be punished. Whether it's sin on our own lives and in our own hearts that causes us to mourn at the point of salvation, or it is sin in the lives of others that causes us to weep and to mourn for our culture and for those who do not know Christ. Mourning is a mark of the citizens of the kingdom. Sin is worthy of our mourning. Now the wicked are marked out as those who don't mourn. And I can't take time this morning to show you this, but in Luke chapter 12 and in James chapter 5, if you're taking notes, Luke chapter 12 verses 13 to 21 is the parable of the rich man who built up some more silos. Remember this? He building barns, just spending money, eat, drink, be merry, relax. Everything is fine. Tomorrow we're going to deal with life. And Jesus says he was a fool because his, his days were numbered. And his soul would be demanded. His judgment would come that night. He was marked as one who lived a life of live and let live. Come what may. Put a smile on your face no matter what. He was a fool. He was a wicked man and he faced judgment. James chapter 5 verses 1 to 6. We studied this last week in Sunday school. The wicked are marked out as those who are laughing, skipping through life. Everything is hunky-dory. Everything is cherries. It's all great. Just icing. James calls them out and says, you should be weeping. You should be mourning. You should be crying because you're about to be destroyed. And your end is permanent. And your joy is surface. Your happiness is temporal. Your punishment is eternal. Weep. In the parallel account in Luke chapter 6, the parallel to the Sermon on the Mount, it's the opposite description that is given. 
that those who laugh should turn their laughter to mourning. That is, the wicked should see their sin for what it is and they should see the judgment that is imminent. So when we see the reality of our spiritual destitution and we see the sin curse that is ours and the worlds around us, we must respond with mourning. But it cannot be mourning just in the sense of, I'm sorry that this is the way it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 sheds light on this. The Apostle Paul again, writing to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, you don't need to turn there. Let me just read this to you. You listen as I read. Paul here is very real with the people he's writing to. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. If you were, if you were offended by what I said, I don't regret it. Verse 8. Though I did regret it, there was a time when I was thinking, man, I don't want to hurt these people. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Here's the verse. For godly grief, verse 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces only death. Godly grief, godly mourning, kingdom mourning is a mourning that produces repentance that leads to salvation. So your grief over your sin, your sorriness for your sin, we have lingo, I'm sorry for what I've done. What does that mean? Your sorriness, your mourning, your grief over your sin must be a mourning, must be a grief that leads to repentance, that is, leads to turning from that sin. And that is the mark of the kingdom citizen. He is one or she is one who has been brought to the end of themselves. They have mourned their sin and that mourning has led them to repentance. They have turned their direction. They're going a different way. They are following Christ, no longer following themselves and their own way. True mourning is so much more than remorse. It's more than regret. It's more than being frustrated that consequences are bad. Kingdom mourning is mourning that leads to repentance, to change, to turning. And it is that mourning, it is that spiritual mourning that is blessed, that is the source of true happiness, for it is that mourning that will be comforted. So we've seen the condition, we've seen the cause, and then finally let's just finish our time quickly with the comfort of the kingdom mourning. The comfort of kingdom mourning. We've seen the condition, the cause, and now the comfort. And this is the last half of verse number 4 in Matthew chapter 5. And we would be lost without this word. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because or for they shall be comforted. The most deeply informed people about sin and about the holiness of God are those who mourn most deeply and they are truly happy. Why? Because in their mourning they will be comforted. The mourners that make up the kingdom of heaven are the only people who will experience the eternal comfort of God. You can offer no comfort from the God of the universe to those who have not mourned their sin, who have not seen themselves for who they are and seen His holiness in comparison and have fallen at the cross in repentance.
There is no comfort offered. The mourners are blessed. Why? Because they will be comforted. This is an immediate comfort that comes from forgiveness. Remember back in Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I am, Paul is mourning because of his sinfulness. And verse 25 says, but thanks be to God who has given the victory through Jesus Christ. This is the greatest comfort for those who mourn. There is an immediate comfort of forgiveness from sin. There is a future comfort of glorification. One of our favorite passages, though we don't go and read in this section very often, in Revelation chapter 21, we read this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is good news. This is our future. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Blessed are the mourners. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, in the reality of forgiveness... In the future, in the reality of glorification, that there will be a day when sin will be no more. There will be no cause for mourning in heaven. Only cause for joy and excitement. The greatest comfort. And there is a divine comfort, finally, in the conversion of others. John 6, 35 to verse 40 tells us that the Father has given sinners to the Son for the sake of salvation. God is saving sinners. We are alive today. The earth is existing today because He is still saving sinners. Those who will place their faith in Him, those who will turn to Him, those who will see their poverty in spirit, who will be humbled before Him, those who will mourn for their sin, they will be saved. Today is the day of salvation. This is the time of grace. We can be comforted in that. The mourners are blessed because they're comforted. They're comforted now. They're comforted in the future. And they're comforted in the knowledge that God is a saving God. And as His gospel is preached, as His gospel is shared with those that we know and come in contact with, He is a saving, compassionate God. Let me end with this. Salvation, which is the greatest comfort, only comes after mourning which is grief leading to repentance. Okay? The order of this beatitude is crucial. Only those who mourn will ever be comforted. There will be no comfort outside of mourning. That should draw your heart to examination. It should draw my heart to examination. Have we mourned? Have we truly seen our sin for what it is? Have we truly come to the end of ourselves, seen our poverty, seen the disgusting nature of our sin? 
Because only in that morning will we experience the great comfort of our God. So I ask you in conclusion, have you mourned for your sin before God? Without it, you will never be truly comforted. You will chase happiness. You will chase superficial laughter. You'll chase the newest comedy, the funniest people. You'll chase a drug or an alcohol or some, some external force that can be put in you that will make you feel happy for a moment, make you laugh, make you think that things aren't what they really are. That God isn't really who he says he is and that you are not as sinful and wicked as you are. It will make you escape for a moment and you will chase after the escape to think that you will not die and stand before a holy judge. And yet you will never know true happiness, blessedness, unless you mourn for your sin. D.A. Carson, one of my mentors on the shelf, loved to read and spend time with Don Carson says this, the Christian is to be the truest realist. He reasons that death is there and must be faced. God is there and will be known by all as Savior and Judge. Sin is there and is unspeakably ugly and black in the light of God's purity. Eternity is there and every living human being is rushing towards it. God's revelation is there and the alternatives it it presents will come to pass. Life or death, pardon or condemnation, heaven or hell. These are the realities which will not go away. The man who lives in light of them cannot but mourn. And he will be comforted. Those who mourn are blessed for they will be comforted. These are the words of the king regarding his kingdom. May we live in light of the truth of his word. Let's pray together.